Things Connected podcast, where we go in-depth on the most pressing and fascinating issues of today with experts in their field. This is Jared Hocking. Quick reminder about some upcoming guests before I introduce today's episode. I'll be speaking soon with one of the giants in the environmental justice field, Dr. Paul Mohai, and we'll be speaking also soon with the filmmaker, Kate Brooks, who produced and directed the 2018 film, The Last Animals, as well as her co-producer, Dr. Rebecca Hardin. And next month, I'll be speaking with University of Illinois professor Dr. Ming Ko, who has also appeared on the show Hidden Brain, talking about her research on the positive connection between experiences in nature and psychological well-being. Okay, today I am speaking with Natasha Daly. Natasha is a writer and editor at National Geographic, where her investigative reporting focuses on animals, including their welfare, conservation, and exploitation. She has a particular interest in the intersection of animals and culture, including how social media and societal trends shape our perceptions and treatment of animals. Her feature story on the unseen suffering in the global wildlife tourism industry was the cover story of the June 2019 issue of National Geographic magazine. And in 2017, she was also awarded the Reporter of the Year by the Humane Society of the United States for her animal welfare coverage. We talk at length during this conversation about Natasha's cover story, which was one of the most widely read pieces of the year for Nat Geo, and what her reporting uncovered about the dark side of the captive wildlife tourism industry, and how it is largely fueled by selfie culture and social media. We also get into the ethics of humans' treatment toward non-human animals, including the difference between conscious experience or the capacity to suffer and intelligence. And we also talk about solutions to this problem in the wildlife tourism industry and how travel goers who wish to see animals can seek out a more ethical and authentic wildlife experience. I am deeply impressed by Natasha's heroic reporting in this area, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. And now I bring you Natasha Daly. Okay, I am here with the writer and editor at National Geographic, Natasha Daly. Natasha, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hi, Jared. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm really excited for what's going to be an interesting conversation. And I'm cognizant of the fact that some of this will be kind of sad, especially with regards to humans treatment of non-human animals. So I wanted to start on more of a, a positive note. And mm-hmm. as I was telling friends that I was going to be speaking with you, many had the reaction that I expected, which is, wow, what a cool job she has. What that, That's like a dream job. So I was curious for our listeners, if you think of your job in that way as a dream job, and what are some of the most exciting aspects of the job, but also what are some of the aspects that are maybe overlooked or less understood that could be unsettling or, or less than ideal? The big picture answer, and this is something I think I, I often have have to remind myself of, is that yes, this is absolutely a dream job. But I think the reason I sometimes have to remind myself of that is because the day-to-day of my job kind of looks like any other job. Um, I'm mostly, I think people have this image of Nat Geo writers being out sort of in the field, in the, in the wilderness, like telling all these amazing stories, which I'm so lucky that I do get to do. But most of my time, I'm actually in the office um, in Washington, D.C., of course, not right now because we're all working from home because of the pandemic. But my job day to day sort of looks like many other kind of newsroom jobs. Um, It's funny because people always say to me the same thing, like, oh, you have this incredible job. You must be like traveling the world all the time. It's like, 
I mean, I think that that is one kind of misperception of what it means to be a Nat Geo writer, um, that a lot of the time we are just sort of in the office. A lot of the stories I write, um, I desk report, which means that I basically, I do, I do my reporting over the phone, but I am very lucky to be able to travel in normal times, of course, several times a year to report stories. And I've traveled to, uh, uh, Latin America several times, uh, Southeast Asia, Russia, um, several other places. So I've been so fortunate in that regard. So I think in that aspect, absolutely. It's a dream job. I think the brand is very well respected. And that's something that I don't take for granted. I know that readers, when they see a Nat Geo story, um, it comes with this credibility, I think. And so that's something that I'm very aware of um, as a writer that I want to make sure to preserve that credibility in my reporting. But it also, you know, it's something that I do really appreciate having that sort of like legacy behind me of great storytelling. So yes, absolutely. It is a, it is in so many ways, a dream job. I'm so thankful that I'm able to do this every single day. Excellent. And yeah, you work at a very special, and as you said, really hollowed place. It certainly has those appealing aspects. Mm -hmm. But one thing that, as you mentioned, people might not appreciate with travel, even traveling the world has its downsides. I mean, I took several trips over the last summer to Costa Rica to do wildlife research, and you're not staying in five-star hotels. Mm -hmm. You're not, the conservation space does not have the budget for that. So sometimes the conditions are not as maybe people might picture them. So I think that's a really honest answer. So much of the past year, or actually preceding 2019, you spent covering the wildlife tourism industry. And this is an an area of human-wildlife interactions that has not gotten as much attention, I think, as wildlife crime, you know, wildlife poaching. And which is a conservation issue. And this is this is largely an animal welfare issue, but it it does dovetail with uh, conservation issues. So this year of reporting that you spent in places like Thailand and Russia and Hawaii Mm -hmm. ended up producing this cover story for National Geographic on the unseen suffering that takes place in the captive wildlife tourism industry. So can you walk our listeners through your reporting over those two years that you spent abroad and and what revelations that reporting produced? Sure. Uh, So the the first trip I did um, on this topic was I went to the Amazon in summer 2017 to report on a very specific situation in one uh, location in Brazil and another location in Peru. People were reportedly removing animals directly from the jungle and putting them in cages uh, for tourists to come through and pet and hold and interact with. Uh, And this was the first time I had heard about this sort of captive wildlife tourism in this part of the world. Um, I think up until then, I had heard a lot about sort of the elephant tourism industry in Thailand, um, tigers in Thailand, lions in South Africa, but I had not heard about this happening in the Amazon. So we thought it was a great opportunity to sort of look at how this industry is really taking hold all over the world. So I went there, um, I reported that story Um, And part of that story, a big element of it was social media. So basically how people in a quest for sort of that perfect selfie while on vacation are sort of more likely to want to go out and seek these pictures with animals. So to be able to, for example, hug a sloth or, you know, put a snake around your neck and get your photo taken and then post it to Instagram. And of course, it creates this sort of envy 
um, among friends and family, just sort of like, wow, you're having this incredible time. Uh, what an amazing adventure, etc. So I think it's pretty easy to see the appeal of why someone would maybe want to do this on vacation. And so this was 2017 when I started. And, you know, at the time, social media was um, massive, it had exploded over the over the previous few years. And these animal photos, these animal selfies on social media um, were everywhere. And what I realized kind of very quickly and looking through all these is that these selfies on platforms like Instagram and Facebook almost created viral advertising for these sorts of animal encounters. So not only were all these places sort of, you could find them while you're on vacation through advertising, but you could be scrolling through your phone at home and see someone else posing with a tiger and be like, wow, I really want to do that. So this sort of really took off. I think there was one um, study that showed that between 2014 and 2017, animal selfies on Instagram had increased something like 250%. So um, I was aware that there was a global sort of hunger for these types of activities accelerated by social media. And after I did the story in the Amazon, I realized that there really was a global story to tell about this, because this is not a issue that's li- limited to any one part of the world. Uh, and so photographer Kirsten Luce and I, who uh, worked on the Amazon, Amazon story together, decided we wanted to pitch a global story on captive wildlife tourism and the social media elements that were really sort of driving it. And so we set out to go to several parts of the world where there were kind of hotspots for these activities. We spent a month on the ground in Thailand looking at elephant and tiger tourism. Uh, We spent almost a month in Russia looking at um, traveling aquariums. So basically dolphins and belugas that are put on the road in trucks and tubs and brought from town to town and set like almost a pop-up aquarium is set up. And we went to Hawaii to look at swimming with dolphin experiences there, sort of high-end experiences. Uh, So we really kind of, this is sort of the genesis of it all. We really wanted to look at what drives this industry, what is motivating tourists to want to go out and seek it. And most importantly, in this story, we wanted to look behind the scenes to see how the animals were actually kept um, when the tourists go home. Because the reality is that tourists see a very, very small snapshot of, of what's going on. They'll go for like a couple hours, take their photos, leave with no idea what the reality is behind the scenes, which unfortunately, and very sadly, um, is often riddled by a lot of suffering for these animals. It it totally is. And you don't need to get very deep into your article before that is made clear. You talk about the story of Mina, the elephant, who becomes central figure in the story. And Mm -hmm. one of the first pieces you lead with is how you found her with this spiked chain around one of her legs that Mm -hmm. as the uh, spoiler alert here, the uh, caretaker describe that this was actually temporary and it comes off at at night. And you quickly found out that that was not true, that this was emblematic of the larger conditions that these animals are found in. And the imagery that you include that you and your collaborator produced during this, during this experience, Natasha is just so striking. And Mm -hmm. it really does paint a thousand words in just one of those pictures, just the three bears that with chains entirely around their neck and their body completely confined. And I would encourage people not only to read the article, but to watch the video where you demonstrate these conditions with video and and on the ground reporting. Mm -hmm. So there's much to get into, which we're going to get into about humans' relationship with non-human animals and and 
the ethics of that. I think before we talk about that, it's important to distinguish between the positive aspects of ecotourism or wildlife mm-hmm. tourism and the reporting that you did on captive wildlife tourism. So many people might know that Costa Rica or Peru or sometimes Brazil, certain places have branded themselves as hotspots for biodiversity and have really built their economy around positive ecotourism. So how should we think about the difference between what you're reporting on and the cruelty taking place there and perhaps more ethical ways of tourism that really can can fuel conservation of species? Because if there's an argument to be made that there's as much revenue or almost as much revenue to be generated from ethical practices of tourism and conserving species as the alternative, which mm-hmm. is burning forests and replacing them with with soybean fields and decimating habitats, then you know that's that's something we want to conserve is is conserving those species and leveraging them to to create revenue. So can you help our listeners differentiate these two different areas? Yeah, that's a really great question. And it's so important because so when we when the term wildlife tourism, I think often there's a misconception that wildlife tourism, it's a negative thing, people associate it with exactly what I wrote about, like the kind of captive animals in cages. The reality is that wildlife tourism is a massive, there's a huge spectrum. So it runs the gamut from the really uh, damaging stuff that I wrote about in my story where animals are often bred in captivity or captured from the wild, put into cages and basically held there until they die uh, for people to come and interact with. And there is a whole host of welfare issues involved in these practices you know, very quickly, many of these animals to make it safe for people to interact with them, such as, you know, tigers and lions, they're often declawed, uh, many are drugged, um, elephants often go through pretty rigorous training to be able to be docile enough to give rides and perform in shows. But then you have the other end of the spectrum, which is exactly what you just described, um, essentially people going out into wild spaces and observing animals from a distance. And, you know, some of the the kind of popular ways to do this are to go on a responsible safari somewhere in Africa, for example, uh, Sri Lanka, there are lots of responsible safaris. Um, as you mentioned, uh, Costa Rica sort of built this amazing brand they have now on a responsible ecotourism. So I think that there are so many ways to see animals responsibly. And if I'm sort of going to differentiate one from the other is that in you know the, the first case, you're seeing an- animals in very unnatural settings in captivity, you're getting close to them. So you're, you're getting the to be able to hold them and touch them, these animals have to go through um, either rigorous training or... Can you talk about those certain things? Because a lot of the video and the Mm -hmm. article describe some of these practices. And Mm -hmm. even for an elephant to be able to be bathed, and certainly some of the other behaviors that it's doing, like uh, throwing darts and and painting, there's a lot of cruel and abusive training and practices that go into that. So can you talk about those practices that you witnessed and have discovered? Sure. Um, yeah. So, you know, when it comes to training elephants in Thailand and throughout Southeast Asia, there is, um, there's a practice called Pajan that is a long, has a long, long legacy. And traditionally it um, involved essentially taking a baby elephant away from its, from its mother, confining it in a very, very tight space um, and beating it basically to break its spirit uh, with, you know, sticks, blocks of wood, stabbing it. I mean, this is very hard to hear, I understand, and it's very graphic, but this traditionally is what some of this training involved. Um, When I was actually on the ground in Thailand, one of my big sort of holes that I needed to fill for my story was 
training? How does it happen? Because everyone sort of tells you something different. Some people say, you know, it's not that bad in reality. Others say, oh yeah, that's still happening. And so I really wanted to, to kind of go to the source and find out. So what I actually did um, in part of that reporting was I went to uh, Surin province in Thailand, in uh, Southeast Thailand, which is known as sort of ground zero for the elephant tourism industry. And this is where over half of the elephants in Thailand are registered to, um, whether they are born there or just came through there. It's sort of a huge sourcing point. And I spent several days there um, meeting with families uh, who own elephants, who raise them. This is the village we are in, Bantaklan. Um, it was absolutely surreal. And if you watch the, the video that went with my story, you'll see it. But basically, you walk down a road and there are, li- there are homes along the side of the road and next to the home is an elephant tied up and people call them house elephants. Like you'd call, you know, a house cat or, or whatever. So this is truly, you know, an elephant village. And so while I was there, I was able to speak to many families who have raised elephants for generations and have trained them for generations. And um, I was able to, to learn that sort of how they train the elephant is to separate it from its mother, tie its legs together, you know, use a bull hook, which is a, a, a wooden instrument with a metal prong on the end to sort of teach it to sit and stand and, you know, walk and march and and everything. So it's, I don't think anyone was denying that it's, you know, distressing for the elephant, but this is just sort of the way it's done. Yeah. And so I think that there's a huge spectrum of the stuff that's really, really grim and to the stuff that, you know, maybe is, is not as bad as it used to be. But I think the overall point is that in order to make an elephant able to um, perform in a show, like throw darts, as you were saying, um, do a handstand, do tricks. That elephant needs to go through this training as a, as a young two-year-old. And then, you know, in order to give rides, same thing. Um, and then there are many sort of popular activities in Thailand now which involve bathing. So, you know, you'll go and it'll be sort of a nice, almost, you know, grassy, lush environment and there'll be a, a river, a mud bath, and you can go in and sort of rub mud on the elephant and bathe it. And I think to the average tourist, this actually seems like a lot more humane than going and watching an elephant perform tricks in a show and going and getting on an elephant's back and going for a ride. But I think that the, the, the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that that elephant is basically being bathed by multiple tourist groups all day long. So it's very repetitive. And beyond that, in order for that elephant to be docile enough to stand there patiently and let you bathe it, um, it has to be trained in the first place. So, you know, this is as long as there is d- a demand for this kind of new fad of elephant bathing, there's going to be a need for trained elephants to kind of supply it. So that's a very kind of long, complicated answer to how um, elephants are trained and why it is such an issue. And not to mention, and the last thing I would just say before we move on on that is that it's not just how they're trained. And once the training is over, it doesn't mean that elephant has a great life. In most of these huge camps across Thailand that offer rides and shows, the elephants are basically chained up on a meter long chain all day in a stall without the ability to interact with other elephants. It's a very sort of monotonous life that is often marked by suffering. um, And you will see all over um, the country, and it's not just Thailand, it's throughout Southeast Asia, that these captive elephants exhibit signs of zoocosis, which is a, a psychological distress. Um, and it's basically a stress sign that they um, they sway back and forth. They exhibit behaviors that are not natural for their species that, in, that indicate chronic stress. So, I mean, this it is, it is a massive issue. Um, and the reality is that most tourists going to these locations will not be able to, you know, identify that an elephant is in distress and definitely won't be able to see 
oh, after they leave, well, where does the elephant sleep? Is the elephant put on a chain with, you know, spikes around the ankle like Mina the, the young elephant was? And that's why this industry is sort of able to thrive because it relies in many ways on the tourist not being able to see the full picture. Yeah. And so I think implicit in everything that we're saying, but without having clearly stated it yet, is that we have a different ethics with regards to our treatment of non-human animals versus our fellow humans. Mm -hmm. And this is an area I spend a lot of time thinking about, and I know you do as well as a as an animal welfare advocate, in addition to your, your work and these cruel practices that you uncovered. It strikes me that these practices are not only legal, but also normalized and totally acceptable in some of these places. And you start the article with this anecdote about Mina. You say, Mina is four years and two months old, still a toddler as elephants go. Her foot is tethered tightly by a short chain and choked by a ring of metal spikes. When the elephant tires and puts her foot down, the spikes press deeper into her ankle. Her mahout or caretaker told me earlier that Mina wears the spike chain because she tends to kick. And we find out later that it's actually a, a fairly permanent situation that this spike chain does not come off. Mm. So our treatment of elephants, which are one of the most intelligent animals on our planet, we treat them in a way that is not only would be totally unacceptable putting a spike chain around a human, but it's legal and accepted. And to me, it's patently obvious that anyone who is paying attention to this and to our non-human counterparts can see that these animals exhibit a range of emotions and have the same capacity to feel as we do. So I wonder, given your perspective in this area and the, the time that you've spent thinking about this, what do you see as flawed about our ethics with respect to non-human animals? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a really great question. I think it's, it's fundamentally a mindset issue that's been in place for, you know, hundreds of years. Um, animals have traditionally, uh, at least the way people have viewed them uh, is, you know, they are here for sort of our use. Um, animals that have been domesticated, which elephants have not been domesticated, which is being domesticated is very different from being tamed. So elephants um, are, are genetically wild, um, which is why every time a new elephant's born, even if it's born in captivity, it still needs to be sort of trained in order to, to interact with humans safely. So I think this is really important to keep in mind. But yeah, I mean, if, I think ethically, it, it comes down to sort of a very deeply embedded viewpoint that um, animals are lesser than humans, first of all, and that animals um, in many ways are here to serve us. Um, so I think that this is something that would, I think it is beginning to change. I think that there is, um, you know, beginning to be a mindset shift that, you know, elephants can feel pain just like humans do, that, you know, animals um, have complex behaviors and emotions and, and able to, to you know, have, they have cognitive abilities that even, you know, we as humans don't. So I think that that's ultimately what it comes down to is that, you know, it will require people to radically shift their mindset towards animals. And in terms of how that's going to come about, I mean, I, I think it really will come down to, to education. Yeah. And I think a big part of this confusion, Natasha, is there's, there's two grounds upon which people make claims about how non-human animals are different than us. Mm -hmm. And the first claim is around conscious experience and capacity to feel. Mm -hmm. And the second is about intelligence. And most individuals would say, well, our treatment of animals is fair because they have a narrow range of conscious experience. And 
they that elephant essentially implicit in this decision to do that is that it's less cruel to do this to an elephant because as you said one they're our property and two they have less capacity to feel but i think people are conflating i, I think when people make that decision they're conflating intelligence or what we view as intelligence, which yeah. is our capacity for language and our capacity for building culture, building science, the technological progress that we've made. They're conflating that with capacity to feel. So imagine a scenario where you're taking a burning steak and trying to brand it into a cow, which I personally have never done, or you're doing that to an elephant. I saw some of the elephants in your video have these tattoos, which indicate that they've been branded. Imagine you're doing that to the elephant or cow. The reaction that you're going to get from that cow or that elephant is really not that different than if you would do that to a human. It's going to cry out in remarkable pain, and it's going to be incredibly uncomfortable for them. So that is one side of this is like their conscious experience, their ability to suffer from all of the evidence that I've reviewed is really not that different. Another example of this is that you show in the video accompanying the article, you talked about this idea of psychosis of obvious distress, animals that are held in captivity, like the monkey that you show in your video is in obvious distress. It's reaction of being confined to a cage that is not much bigger than itself and to be totally removed, totally socially isolated is not evidently any different than a reaction that a human would have. So I think if we're going to make ethical progress in this area, and I would love to speak with the likes of Sam Harris or Peter Singer, really ethicists in this area is to point out, look, we're treating animals in a way that reflects that their conscious experience is less expansive than ours. And it's possible that that is true of worms or insects or, you know, single cell bacteria. It's certainly possible that. But when you see a monkey, which is not even a primate, be in such obvious distress, that raises an alarm bell about how we're treating that animal. So I think if we look 100 to 200 years in the future, given the long arc of history bends towards progress in a way, I would hope that we come to realize that the treatment of of non-human animals is just so wrong because their experiences are no different than ours. So I actually, to segue here uh, to your your piece, and we can talk about intelligence too and the ways that elephants are have exhibited traits like mourning of their ancestors returning to burial grounds and the fact that we can train them to, <laughs> to, to paint and the fact that whales have language that is essentially commensurate with ours. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of examples of intelligence in the, in the animal world, which we can get into, but staying on the conscious experience part for a second. So you, you say in the article, which kind of contradicts in, in some sense, I see the argument that, you know, of psychosis and the obvious distress you saw, you say humans identify suffering in others by universal signs. People sob, wince, cry out and put voice to their hurt. Animals have no universal language for pain. Many animals don't have tear ducts. More creatures still, prey animals, for example, actually instinctively mask their symptoms of pain lest they appear weak to predators. Recognizing that a non-human animal is in pain is difficult, often impossible. So this is certainly interesting from the standpoint of a universal language for suffering or the idea of, of tears, which actually some some elephants um, have have do have tear ducts and have cried before. So I see this um, in a way that if we choose to see, for those who choose to see that animals are are suffering, it's pretty evident that they are. So would you agree with that statement that I just made and offer any revision or interpretation of of the statement in the article? 
Um, no, I would not offer a revision of it. I think that the point is that, you know, it is very difficult, I think, for the average person to show up and look at an elephant in, in one of these camps, in one of these stalls and recognize if the elephant is in pain. And I think that Mina is actually a great example. So, you know, she had a spiked chain around her ankle. And the only way you'd be able to tell that she was in discomfort is the fact that she kept sort of raising her foot. She wasn't crying out. Uh, she wasn't sort of making any vocalizations that maybe, you know, a four-year-old human child who had a spike around her ankle may have um, made. So I think that, you know, in talking with with many experts for this story who research how animals sort of vocalize distress, there are just so many different uh, ways to do it. I have two, I have uh, three pet bunnies um, and rabbits are prey animals, for example. And if they're in extreme distress, they may scream. But um, if they're in just sort of everyday distress, um, they'll just kind of sit there and try and look invisible. So I think that it's the point is that there is a spectrum. And I think from species to species, the way an animal will sort of verbalize distress or show distress can vary widely. So that was the point the story was trying to make. Right. And I actually think that brings up a really interesting point. The title of Franz DeWall's book is, Are We Smart Enough to Recognize How Smart Animals Are? So you mentioned there's no universal language for suffering in animals, but part of it is that it's easier for us to recognize the crying of a, of a toddler because they're our own species. And animals actually exhibit very similar ways that they recognize suffering in others. So for example, elephants, it's been known that those animals who are, are sickly, who have become ill, other elephants will gather around them and try to comfort them and try to improve their health. And other species do this too. So I think kind of hovering over all of our ethics in this is that somehow humans are the arbiter of all views of consciousness yeah. and what is language is our, well, other species don't have language like we, as much as we do. Well, who are we to say that? How, how do we know that the language that whales use is not, yeah, is not as advanced as ours. Yeah. So yeah, there's kind of a bias for looking at things in our own species as opposed to recognizing those in others. But on the on the note of suffering, so one thing that struck me as I was watching the video is even during some of the cruel practices that these mahouts were were doing using the bull hook, actually the the elephant's ears were flapping and its tail was moving side to side, which which would indicate to some extent that it was actually happy. Did you see that at all that the apparent outward behavior seemed to indicate that it was actually happy and content while it was even being abused in some way? I think it's tough to assign meaning to the ear flaps and tail wags on any sort of like broad uh, scale. I think it really would depend on the specific circumstances. Elephants, when one of the main ways they exhibit stress is to sway back and forth. Um, and it almost looks like they're dancing and they're sort of just like rocking. And, and it, it's a very sort of if you saw that as a tourist, you probably wouldn't think twice that that means the animal's in distress, but it's a clear marker that uh, the animal has suffered either in the past or is currently um, has severe psychological distress. Um, and again, that can just look like they're dancing. So I think that going back to how exa animals exhibit pain or distress, I think that's a really good example of a way that, that a human may not even identify means that that animal is in distress or has some sort of psychological trauma because they're kind of swaying back and forth. But in reality, um, it is a clear marker. So I think that, you know, and the fact that animals can't talk. So, you know, humans can cry out, they can say why they're upset. I mean, there are all these ways to understand human pain that just doesn't exist um, when we're talking about animals. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a a misperception or a a confusion about the the animal's inner experience in in that moment. um, Right. So switching gears slightly, much of this is fueled by increased use of of social media, which we talked about to, to some extent, but you really point out that this is being fueled by selfie culture and this, what I see is kind of a, you know, a narcissistic tendency that we have now to curate this online identity. And you talk about how wildlife tourism isn't new, but it's really being set ablaze and some of these places have sprung up mm-hmm. to cater to our, our willingness to prize our online identities and the chance for a photo op above all else. So can you talk about how these two things are, are linked? You mentioned earlier the increase in social media and the increase in the wildlife tourism industry, but are most people that are doing this just unaware of the ways that they're contributing to the the issue? and uh, or, or are they actually doing it? Are they just prizing that experience above all else? Uh, so I think most people, most people I encountered, uh, most social media users that I spoke with online while researching the story... Um, really are unaware that the activities that they were just engaging in um, involve suffering in many cases behind the scenes. Um, I think the entire industry is built so that the average person can't detect any of the dark side of it. So for example, you know, you might see a social media influencer who, you know, someone who has hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers, um, go to an elephant's location, post a beautiful photo of them standing next to an elephant, talk about an amazing experience. And then you have potentially thousands of followers wanting to do the same thing. So I think that there is that sort of sanitization of how these activities look on social media. Everyone is trying to present their activity with that animal in sort of the best light in a very sort of joyous way. And so I think that it, it immediately sets the stage that, okay, this is a fun activity. There's nothing nothing going on here. No one would actively show an animal in distress. So I think right away that that sort of creates a perception that this is all sort of fun. There's nothing really at play here. And then when you get to the actual facility, I mean, many of these places, you'll go for sort of an hour or two, you'll watch a show or you'll do an elephant ride, you'll feed an elephant a banana or whatever, and you'll leave. And that that short window means that you have no real ability to see how that elephant lives, how that elephant was trained, how, how that elephant is chained up at night, or even after you get off the back for a ride. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, there just is fundamentally the the tourist just does not have the visibility to see the full picture. Um, and it's not just elephants. I mean, it's tigers. Like you'll go to hug a tiger cub and it's, it's you know, who doesn't, who wouldn't want to hug a tiger cub? It's a very, I, I you know, it's understandable why that action in a bubble would be something that would be very desirable for someone because they're extremely cute. But I think that, again, you go without the knowledge of the fact that these cubs are speed bred. Um, They're only able to be hugged and cuddled for a very short window of time before they get too big and they kind of they move on. Um, So it's again, you're going to a cub petting facility that always has cubs available. And you have to ask yourself, okay, why are there always cubs available to be pet? Well, it's because they're always being bred and born. But again, the average tourist is not going to think outside of those things, they're going to go, they're going to have their experience, get their photo and leave. So I really do think to your question of, you know, are people aware that they're suffering and just their priority? prioritizing, um, getting a selfie or whatever over that. 
you know, I, I can't, of course, I can't speak for everyone. I'm sure some are and would want to do it anyway. I'm sure that exists. But I do think based on my reporting, the, the vast majority just simply um, aren't aware. Or, you know, someone they may kind of be have an inkling that, oh, well, is this okay? I've kind of read some stuff that, you know, I don't know if it is. And they may have someone at the facility um, or a tour guide or whatever, um, someone who's financially incentivized to get them to do the activity, tell them, oh, no, don't worry, like, it's all fine. The elephant industry in Thailand, uh, for example, it's a it's a very sort of vocal um, industry that they have deep incentive to keep the status quo alive. So there's a lot of sort of spin going on that, you know, what you read about the sort of horrible stuff, you know, isn't isn't true. All the animals are treated well, etc. Yeah. And and you point out that a lot of these tourists are actually doing this not to fuel any mistreatment of animals, but because right. they love animals and they want yeah, to yeah, yeah. get close to them. So I, I, w- I want to ask about ways that you make clear in a really compelling way at the end of the video that everyone has a part to play in this and that our decisions really do matter. And And I want to get to that in a second. I do want to point out real quick, I couldn't help but remember while I was reading your article about this article from a, a while back. It's in The Guardian. It's uh, The Long Read. And the title of it is Picks or Didn't Happen, The Mantra of the Instagram Era. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's just become so patently obvious that people are prizing the likes and the response that they get on these platforms of social media. My friend, Andy Lederman, who owns a huge social media company, he calls it cheap dopamine, you know, just mm-hmm. like posting a picture and seeing the response that people get. And it's really creating some very insidious psychological trauma for us in terms of comparisons with other people. And it, it's fueling the suffering of, of animals. So mm-hmm. for people listening to this, I would really encourage them to think about their use of social media and how when you go to a concert or when you visit Thailand, you should be enjoying that moment and enjoying the company you're with rather than trying to capture every moment on social media and show the world what's going on. I mean, it's just, it's so clear that it's really an arms race in terms of social status that these platforms are, are creating. Have you, have you seen that? I know you use social media. Have you seen that on, on Instagram? And do you think that's a big part of this story? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a re- there it's a very real desire to sort of present yourself in the best light possible to make your life uh, seem you know, interesting and fascinating to make your travels seem glamorous to make. And of course, that is not the case for everyone. That's not the case across the board. But I think it, there is a very real impulse for this for many people, um, whether you have a very small following of friends and family, um, or whether you have a following of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, I think there are some of the same impulses there that you want to present sort of the best version of your life. So I think that 100%, I agree that it's it is a very, very real motivator. Um, You know, in many ways, you know, this is sort of a separate issue. But it, you know, I think that there are some studies that have been done about people's willingness to put themselves in danger for selfies has grown a lot over the past few years. Um, And there was a whole sort of kind of raft of people actually dying uh, from trying to take really dangerous selfies on, you know, train tracks or 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 cliffs of mountains. We've seen some of these stories about people going into, you know, enclosures at zoos to get closer to the animals to take photos. So I think that it's not just sort of this wildlife tourism selfie aspect of it. There's There's a real sort of impulse to want to like, 
take risk to increase your, I guess, credibility on social media or whatever. So yeah, I mean, this is across the board, I think, I think an issue. Um, And it's definitely an issue that's really sort of dovetailed with the captive wildlife tourism stuff, because it's it's a really easy way to get a very sort of appealing once in a lifetime photo of yourself and a baby tiger by doing this. So I think I, 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 that's why I do understand sort of the psychological impulse of wanting to do these activities. But I think I really do think that if a lot of people realized um, the harm that lurks beneath them, they'd think twice before doing it. And, you know, I have seen, I mean, this, you know, I talk a lot about how social media has given rise to these activities, but social media has also really made a difference in um, education with this stuff too. So after my story came out, I was inundated with messages, um, comments from followers, from people across Instagram and Twitter saying like, wow, you know, I had absolutely no idea that this is what goes on. I was thinking, you know, for my honeymoon, we were going to ride an elephant and now we're literally changing our plans. I mean, I, I saw in a very sort of real time way, uh, people changing their minds and, Uh, being thankful for knowing the truth. So I think that, you know, we can talk about sort of the dark side of social media, but there is a very powerful way that it's able to sort of spread a positive message very quickly. And I think it really does come down to people do love animals and don't want to hurt them. And so once they start to see sort of like, this is what goes on behind the scenes that you didn't know about, people are, I think, very quickly to sort of be like, okay, I don't want to be a part of this. um, And I'm going to try and be part of the solution by sharing to my own platform to try and educate my own followers. Yeah, it's... I mean, it probably caters to the instincts of whoever is using it. It can amplify messages for good, or it can be deceptive and be used as a tool of of self-indulgence and psychological stress, especially for the younger generations that are growing up with such a primacy, such an importance on their online image. It it can really, it's, it's very unsettling. And as you mentioned, it's, it's fueling this behavior that is just flat out ridiculous. I mean, you know, the people that are walking around cities taking hours of footage with their selfie sticks and not mm-hmm. seeing anything with their own two eyes is just strikes me as totally ridiculous. And I hope people can come to see that and regret that. And the people who tried to get the selfie at Machu Picchu uh, the day before that I was there on a, a closed track, they were trying to get a, a selfie there rather than just appreciating the landscape and they fell to their death. I'm sure they would tell you if they were here that they regret doing that. So for the people that are still here and either fueling really perverse industries or, or who are not experiencing life because they're more concerned about the social image, I would just encourage anyone to rethink that. So Mm -hmm. we're, we're talking in large part about the problem, but you just, you talked just now about there are more ethical experiences that are out there Mm -hmm. and you feature in the video actually a specific place. So for, for those who want to go to say India or Bolivia or Thailand or Peru, one of these biodiverse hotspots and Mm -hmm. get, you know, an authentic interaction with wildlife potentially, where would we direct them to? What kinds of experiences should they pursue? The idea of an ethical interaction is maybe something that people should try and challenge themselves to get away from. So the reality is that as soon as interaction comes into play, there is going to be red flags. So what I would do is encourage people who have a desire for an interaction with a wild animal to maybe think that, 
okay, would I be just as satisfied observing a wild animal or, you know, watching a wild animal in a more sanctuary like setting where I don't, I maybe don't get to touch that animal. I don't get to take a selfie with that animal, but I know that what I'm doing is, you know, not make, not contributing to a more detrimental reality for these animals. So that's the first thing I would do is like, you know, if you really want interaction, maybe try and think twice about seeking that. And beyond that, I would just, again, look on, I always recommend people look on TripAdvisor, look on, you know, local travel sites for those locations. Definitely look at ratings of places, but I always recommend that people read the one and two star reviews as well, because that's often where people have flagged animal welfare concerns. I mean, an attraction can have like an overall 4.5 star uh, rating, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's humane. I mean, it just comes back to the reality that many people actually can't identify inhumane things by going to visit for one or two hours. So I always recommend read the one or two star reviews, look at the website for the actual uh, activity and see what they offer. If they're offering interaction, that may be a red flag. If they talk about sort of observation, if they talk about giving back to conservation, uh, that can be a really good thing, but also be aware that a lot of the bad actors claim they give back to conservation. So it doesn't mean that that place is automatically good because they, they, they give to conservation. So yeah, I mean, these are just a few ways that you can sort of begin to identify for yourself. But I'd say that those that's a great way to start and also just sort of familiarize yourself with what is good welfare for an animal, a really good um, resource to look up at least for, like for a starting point is is called the five freedoms. Um, and it, it's a guideline established in the UK um, decades ago, on basically animals should have basic freedoms, including freedom from hum- hunger or thirst, freedom to engage in natural behaviors. There are several others, but just look up online, familiarize yourself with that. And then you, you're you going to be armed with um, sort of the ability to do a basic check when you go somewhere or go to a website to see, okay, do these animals look like all their needs are being provided for? Are there any activities that I think could be a red flag, etc. So it's tough. I think that, you know, for a lot of people, it's really hard on first glance to tell whether a place is responsible or not. And many of these places are very savvy at pretending they're responsible, but actually they aren't in reality. So I think reading those negative reviews is key because often people who go somewhere and are upset with what they see will go ahead and try and warn others online. Okay, great. And I'm also aware that there's an association for the zoos and aquarium, which is called the World Association. It's essentially an accreditation system. Does that exist for any of the places that you went to? And I know part of this is that something could be called ostensibly a sanctuary and it it ostensibly looks like one. But the key divider there is the interactions that you have, because ultimately that just means that the animal had to be trained in some way. So are there any accreditations and any signs that people should look out for as they're traveling? There is the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, which does accredit sanctuaries around the world. It's tough with sanctuaries because in Thailand, for example, there is no legal definition of what a sanctuary is. So basically any facility could call themselves a sanctuary. So again, be very wary if you know a place has labeled itself a sanctuary, it ultimately means nothing. You actually have to look at what they're offering to be able to kind of tell for yourself. So yeah, there's the AZA, which is for zoos and aquariums in the US, which accredits zoos with very high welfare standards in the US. 
but zoos are not sanctuaries. So if you're looking at going to a sanctuary, yeah, you could check out the Global Federation for Animal Sanctuaries. But beyond that, I mean, it's tough. There is no real sort of one body that has vetted every single sanctuary in the world. So I think that it would be amazing if there was. But in a lot of cases, people just have to sort of do the homework themselves and rely Mm -hmm. on sort of what they're able to sort of feel comfortable about um, when they do their research online. Right. It strikes me that we're talking about the global captive wildlife tourism industry, which is a huge industry. The the wildlife tourism industry apparently contributed more than $300 billion to world economies directly in in 2018. Mm -hmm. But we're not talking about other things that are happening with regards to non-human animals, which include the 20,000 wildlife farms that are in China alone and, Mm -hmm. and more that are spread across Southeast Asia. I'm curious during your reporting, if you came across any of those that were nearby these captive tourism industries, because the existence of the animals in those essentially being farmed for either food, which tigers are a farm to table meal in Laos and Vietnam and parts of Thailand and being farmed for medicinal purposes while in the wild, there's only 4,000 individuals. Did you come across those at all? You know, it's a tough question because um, many facilities, they will sort of, their front will be a tourism experience. So you'll go and watch shows and whatever, but behind the scenes and not as visible to tourists, they may be engaged in selling animals for meat, etc. So it's honestly not always clear. I did go to one facility outside of Bangkok, Samuprakarn Crocodile Farm and Zoo, and that place uh, does farm crocodiles uh, for meat. But they also you can go there and like buy pieces of chicken and pay money to sort of dangle a chicken over the crocodiles and tease them with it and feed them. So it's like half tourist activity and half actual farm. And yes, these places, um, although I was really focused on the tourism side of it while I was doing reporting for this story. So that's what I was looking at. These places are all over, um, not just Southeast Asia, but all over the world. I have not been to China. I've been to China, but I haven't been there to report as a journalist. But, you know, I've reported from my desk, especially this year amid the pandemic, looking at the wildlife trade out of China and how the wildlife trade may have contributed to the spread of the virus in the first place. And yes, there are these wildlife farms. There are many wildlife farms in the country farming animals for food, for fur, for medicinal purposes, for all sorts of things. So it is not just the tourism kind of enterprise that is a concern. There are concerns for animals all over the world. You know, many of these industries are much bigger than the tourism industry, uh, you know, such as fur, the medicinal industry, etc. So yeah, this is not limited to any one sphere. And many times these spheres all sort of overlap together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. there's a prominent theory that for animals that resist training, such as tigers, for example, they actually are just shipped off to these places where they're farmed. And you pointed out how there's literally only a a very small window during which these tiger cubs are able to be trained and be interact with humans. And the question remains, okay, well, that tiger is going to become an adult. And these places that are relatively small, don't have the capacity to showcase all of these animals. So where did those animals go? Well, there's a prominent theory that a lot of these places, as you said, are interconnected and actually the legal wildlife tourism industry is fueling the, in part, illegal or depending on the the country you're in, fueling the, the wildlife trade, illegal wildlife trade. 
Yeah, excellent point. I think that the tiger tourism industry is a great example of the tourism shelf life for many of these baby cubs. It's very short and it raises the question of, okay, well, what happens to them after? We know that there's a big sort of demand for posing with adult tigers, uh, a lot of which are declawed or drugged or whatever to make that safe. But again, you know, there are many, many baby cubs and we don't have transparency for what happens to these cubs after. Yes, you are right. It is a, a big concern. And I think it just shows that all of this stuff, even the legal side of it, is often connected to illegal enterprises as well. Mm -hmm. One thing you talked about in an interview on the topic about your reporting, there's an argument that can be made, maybe people who prize the livelihoods of people above the suffering of animals is that, well, these are these people's occupations. This is their how they feed their families. This is their livelihood. And even people who are doing some pretty downright abhorrent things that you found in Russia, the polar bear dancing exhibit is, I mean, just astounding considering the plight of polar bears and given that they're so far removed from their natural habitat. So what do you make of that argument and the implications for how we view the livelihoods of these people versus the suffering of the animals? Yeah, I think it's really, really complex. Um, it may be the most complex facet of this entire industry. And I also think that no one situation is the same as any other situation. Um, so yes, I mean, it's a very obviously real concern um, that, you know, if this stuff were to go away, it would affect the livelihoods of, of many individuals. I think a really good example of this is um, that one of the communities I visited um, in the Amazon in summer 2017, uh, this community, it's a tiny community on the Peruvian side of the Amazon River. Across the river was Colombia. It's where Peru and Colombia meet. And um, this many individuals in this community were um, involved in uh, poaching animals illegally out of the jungle, keeping them in captivity. And then boatloads of tourists would come every day and sort of hold them and, and take selfies of them. And the animals would die often after six weeks or a month and be replaced. And a local NGO there um, actually... After we left, um, six months later, the Peruvian government came in and did a whole raid. And they said, you need to stop. Um, if you don't stop, if you catch new animals, we're going to start you know, throwing people in jail, basically. Uh, and so a local NGO came in to work with the community um, to try to find new sustainable ways that the community could actually give up this practice and continue to make money. And the people there decided, you know, we are going to be committed to, to making change. We're not going to capture new animals. They built a whole um, really impressive uh, culture museum, like right in the little town with artifacts, offering cooking classes, all sorts of stuff for tourists coming over from the Colombian side, because visiting this village was sort of like a, a day trip um, to experience Peru, if you were coming from the Colombian side of the river. And this was, you know, everyone put on all this effort. But then the reality at the end of the day, and this is really sad, is that the tourists stopped coming. Once the animals were gone, the hotels stopped giving tours to the island because they basically were like, well, the animals were the draw. Why would we visit you now? And so I think that this is a um, really kind of sad reality um, that underscores a situation where people were really willing to change and actually stop doing this. But the reality is that the market wasn't ready for it. And people weren't interested in, interested in going without the animals because they only wanted the animals. So my point in saying all this is that I think it ultimately does come down to consumer demand. Um, I think that consumers are going to lead the charge and what is offered. And I think the market is always going to follow. And of course, this one town situation may or not may not be replicated all over the world. But I think that as long as a market, it's easy, I think, for people to point fingers at 
what they see as perpetrators, like the trainers of these animals, the owners, etc. But this market for polar bear shows and for traveling dolphin shows and elephant rides and sloth selfies only exists because people are willing to pay for it and they're willing and they want it and there's a demand for it. So yes, it's very easy to point fingers and say what they're doing is wrong, but we have to look at ourselves. And I don't just mean you and me, but I mean ourselves as a culture and be like, well, we're selling out the polar bear um, circus stadium or the ticket. It was a full house when I was there. And so it's just like, you know, as long as there's the demand for this, why would anyone stop doing it? And I think that that's sort of the reality that um, we need to look at the demand side as much as we look at the supply side and consider the fact the market is always going to follow where consumers take it. Yeah, that's a, a really compelling argument. And in the end, that's all that most of the people who are listening to this can do. They, it's it's tougher to shut these places down. But one, one thing I'm cognizant of ethically is that it, it strikes me as a very poor ethical thing to do to make your livelihood off of the exploitation and suffering of a, another being, right? Like the animals like Mina, who you point out, are literally born into this situation, who are bred in, in captivity and will spend as much of a lifespan as humans have, will spend 70 or 80 years mm -hmm. in captivity with chains around them, performing monotonous tasks and never being given the opportunity to be free. Making your livelihood off of that is just, it strikes me as very unethical. Now, this, this brings the question, well, what if I were in that situation? What if I were born into Thailand and I saw no other way? That certainly is a compelling argument. I mean, if if this is all they believe they can do, but it just um, it's sad that you know we we because of our ethics, because of our belief that people can make a profession out of what is obviously inflicting harm and suffering on another being, that we accept that because it provides a livelihood to people. Right. So so on a different topic, it, we, we've spent a lot of time on the wildlife tourism, but you cover a number of topics. And one of the articles I read with interest recently was your coverage of the wildlife markets in China. And mm -hmm. what is not a commonly known thing, which is that a lot of the citizens there do not embrace those practices of, of farming wildlife mm -hmm. in these wet markets and actually can condemn them. I, I recently spoke with my professor who's an expert in disease ecology and, and wildlife ecology on the links between writ large ecological destruction and the farming of wildlife and the current pandemic. Mm -hmm. But can you so can you talk about what you found on your, your reporting there? And if you think that these bans, these I believe they're temporary bans on mm -hmm. wildlife farming might be there to stay and, and any shift in viewpoints that you're you're seeing there. It's a great question and it's a really fascinating topic. I think this is a lot of people around the world's introduction to, you know, a wildlife market and a wet market. Many people had never even really heard that this was such a thing. Um, basically what it is, you know, there at least live animals were being sold, kept in very close proximity to each other. Many animals at these places are um, often sick. And the close proximity of these animals, you know, one researcher described it to me, it's almost like a, it's a cauldron of contagion. So these animals all being in close proximity, some of them may have been in the wild and snatched from the wild just days prior. And so the fact that you have all these different species, many of them are sick in one location, 
creates almost this cesspool for diseases to spread. So I think that that's where um, and that's why there was so much attention immediately on this wet market and on wildlife markets in China in general. And as you mentioned, yes, the Chinese government did ban the sale and consumption of wild animals. This is something that it is still in place. Um, Notably, what was omitted from that ban was a sale of live animals and animal parts for other purposes, um, including traditional Chinese medicine in many ways is omitted from that and and animal part. It's complex, but I think that the main takeaway here is that uh, the sale and consumption or the, sorry, the sale of live animals for consumption is what was made illegal. And so when I was, I was reporting this story and I think that in a lot of media at the time, there were a lot of stereotypes going around that, oh, you know, China, they just eat anything with legs. I mean, there were a lot of really sort of xenophobic things said about the way Chinese people eat and about these wildlife markets. And I think that why that's problematic is for a few reasons. One, it's incredibly xenophobic and racist. Two, these markets exist all over the world. I've been to several of them in um, Latin America, for example. It's the same situation. And so this is not just a Chinese thing. And then the third thing is that so many Chinese people that I talked to in reporting this story could simply not relate to this. Like, you know, I talked to several young people over Instagram And they said, like, one of them said, I've never eaten wild animal. No one in my family has. Like, we think it's disgusting. Another young person I talked to said, oh, actually, yeah, I have. My family has. You know, I think that we probably shouldn't. I think that this this, uh, pandemic um, gives sort of an indication that this is not good for the health of the planet or animals or people to, you know, for these practices to continue. And, you know, I think that the point is that there's huge nuance and how people all over the country, as with every country, see these issues. And so I think that that's sort of what I thought was the most important takeaway from this is that, yes, these markets exist. Yes, there was a ban put in place. The ban is not fully comprehensive, but it is there. So I think if there's any sort of takeaway from this, it's that we collectively um, need to be looking at how we consume and sell and treat wild animals uh, for consumption purposes all over the world, even in the U.S. Yeah. And as Johannes made clear in that episode, and you made clear just now, these practices really conflict with the longevity of humanity and impose an existential threat. And the ecological destruction and destruction of habitats and increasingly encroaching upon wildlife and using them for for food is not just an issue for wildlife. It's also an issue for humanity. And I probably will have someone come on to talk about veganism and and the ethics of factory farming at some point. But Mm -hmm. Natasha, you've been really great with your time and you're such an eloquent speaker. And I just admire your work so much for how you're uplifting the uh, consciousness around animal welfare issues. And this reporting is just groundbreaking and, and really breathtaking. And I'm so grateful you you took to the time for this. Where can people, I'm going to link to your Twitter to become more aware of your stories. And uh, I know you're on Instagram, but where can people find you if they, they want to find you online? First of all, thank you so much, Jared, for having me. Uh, it was a great conversation. So happy to to join you today and to talk about all of these important issues. Uh, so thank you for having me. And yeah, I mean, if people um, are interested in following my work, I would love um, to continue to share my my work with you. And I really appreciate uh, you reading. Um, and you're able to follow me, uh, yeah, like you said, on Twitter and Instagram at Natasha L. Daily on both platforms. 
So that would be great. And um, yeah, you can always read my stories on the NetGeo website. Uh, my personal website where I index most of my stories is NatashaLDaily.com. Well, thank you so much. I will make sure to link out to those. And this has been a real pleasure. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Jared. If you're enjoying the All Things Connected podcast, there's many ways you can show your support. You can write a review on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher, wherever you listen. You can share it with a friend or talk about it on your own podcast. You can post about it on social media, such as sharing your favorite episode. Or you can support it directly on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash all things connected. Thank you very much. Your support is much appreciated.